0: Hello, and welcome to Building Community with Whitney and Anu. We are two Asian-American millennials who aim to empower our communities through our stories and words, one cup of tea at a time. Welcome to another episode of Building Community with Whitney and Anu. It is another super hot day here in Los Angeles, so I hope you are staying as cool as you can if you are here in LA with us. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, and so we thought that we would center this episode around mental health. Over the past couple of years, it seems that mental health has become a part of a broader conversation, but we are still finding that nearly one in five American adults will have a diagnosable mental health condition for any given year. I can only imagine that has risen in 2020. We have also found that mental health issues profoundly impact not only the Asian American community, but also millennials as a whole. So today, Anu and I have our tea, and we are going to dive in and talk more about mental health. So first, what does it mean to talk about mental health?
1: I guess we could explore the definition of mental health. So for me, mental health is about your psychological and emotional wellness. So just how you're feeling, how you feel about yourself, your surroundings and the world around you.
0: I think it drives pretty much everything in your life. Like I can't think of anything that your mental health doesn't affect. So it's important to really have a positive outlook on your mental health, even though that can be really hard. I find that to have a good mental health is to feel more comfortable with oneself or to be figuring out ways to help various situations. And that also plays into well-being and how you feel psychologically about yourself, where you are in your life. Millennials are notorious for having existential crises, not infrequently. I feel like for us millennials, we are more prone to having mental health issues. Do you have any experiences with that? I just
1: had an existential crisis last week. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) I just had one this morning.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we definitely have experience with that.
0: I feel like as a millennial growing up now, I, well, I, I really did just have an existential crisis this morning. And what it really came up, came down to was... I was like, wow, it seems like every 10 years or so, there's this economic crash or terrible thing that happens. I mean, terrible things happen all the time, but it just seems every 10 years, there's like, bam, everyone's got to redo their life and everyone's got to get another job, get another house, or they have to hustle even more. So it's like capitalism on super hard mode. Humans aren't really built to do that, in my opinion. For the most part, humans aren't really built to participate in capitalism, really. That's a very colonialist ideology we're not really built to not only participate in capitalism, but participate in capitalism on hard mode, which leads to COVID-19, the economic crashes that we've endured. That definitely affects our mental health. It seems like there are pockets in our communities where we talk about wellness, we talk about self-care. Self-care has been a huge buzzword among millennials in the past few years. And so I think about self-care a lot. And I'm like, how Part of my existential crisis this morning was how can I do self-care in the times of COVID? Being someone in my late 20s, someone who is trying to figure out a career, trying to figure out how to not only survive, but also thrive. And thriving in a sense of where I can continue traveling like I love doing, or I can buy a burrito with guacamole without thinking about it. I'm not sure if you've had this, but I've definitely had things where I've been tied on cash and I've been like, do I need that guacamole? And usually I just get it because it's a treat myself moment. But I just want to get to a point economically where I'm just like, yeah, that guacamole is great. That's something that I was thinking about. That affects my mental health for sure. Because in my experience, at least growing up, millennials were taught that you go to college and you get married and you have a bunch of children and you do all these things and you will have a nice life. We've gone to a place where you can be A waiter at a restaurant and you can buy a house to both my partner and I right now, we both work full time and we can't afford a house. Why is that? And how can that not affect our mental health when we've done all the things that the previous generation has taught us? Even though rationally we know it's not about us, we feel like it's about us. At least that's in my experience. Do you have any experiences with that?
1: I can definitely relate to that idea of feeling like you've done everything right like you followed the right steps that your parents or family has set out for you you've gone to high school got a higher education or went to a good job and you still feel like there's something lacking or you still feel you haven't reached that lasting stage of happiness people are working as hard as ever and some people are still finding it hard to create the life that they imagined. So I think that's creating issues for people everywhere as well. Mental health can be a taboo topic just generally, but do you feel like it is even more taboo within the Asian community?
0: I definitely do. Yeah. I feel like within the Asian community, it's really hard to talk about mental health because it seems like the previous generations just didn't talk about it. It was a lot about doing things yourself and pushing through and saving face. There was a lot of shame brought onto you and your family if you, say, cried in public or if you showed any emotion whatsoever. And so it seems like it's this, it's this conundrum that a lot of Asian folks have where it's like, oh, we don't talk about that here. We don't talk about mental health in my family for years, like they would say that depression is not a thing. And there was a lot of shame around trying to take medication for it or going to therapy.
1: Sure. I can definitely relate with my family too. It was more about, you know, that this is something that's going on in your head and with right exercise and food and diet, it can Mm -hmm. be solved. And it's not always like that. it can be a chemical imbalance that truly requires medication or behavioral therapy or whatsoever. So I do agree. I think it's just a bit of a generational mentality where older generations may think that this is something that the individual can fix. And ultimately, it is up to the individual to fix. But I do feel that in this day and age, the individual needs certain resources to be able to go down that wellness path.
0: For me growing up, it was really hard because in Japan or in Japanese culture, there's a phrase, it's called gammon. And gammon is a Zen Buddhist term. And basically it means you endure the seemingly unbearable with patience, dignity, and perseverance. So it's basically what it's carry-on in American culture. So when people say,s like, oh, carry on, keep going. In Japan, Japanese culture, it's it's gama. And that was used a lot in Japanese internment. When Japanese Americans were interned, there was some people who rebelled and who said that they had to carry on and keep going, and some people who kept their head down. And that was their definition of carrying on. So I grew up with the gaman culture, where it was, you have to keep going, and it's that tough skin mentality. I also think that saving face culture has made it hard for us to talk about mental health. And that actually, now that I'm thinking about it, reminds me of how we use social media. Because to me, social media is a form of giving face and to put up something that isn't really as true. When I look at social media photos, I sometimes find myself comparing my photos to others' photos. Sure. And so I find that I have to put up like other photos. And it's ironic because social media was created to bring us closer together. But if anything, it's pulling us farther apart.
1: Personally, I don't really like to use too much social media in my private life. Just for that reason, I feel that a lot of people are putting up an image of what they want other people to perceive their lives as. Which may not always be true, and I understand why they're doing it. We all love to portray that we are having a happy, successful life, and that's great, but I think it can also be very harmful to project that a hundred percent of the time because I'm not sure that anyone can have that one hundred percent of the time. I think that is an issue with me when it comes to social media. I think It was originally intended to connect people worldwide, bring us together, but it's almost become a platform of comparison. You just see other people's photos and you see them having a drink or partying and you're like, hmm, wow, they look super happy. I'm not sure I'm having moments like that during my weekends or weekdays and that kind of brings you down. So that's just a minor example, but social media can be a double-edged sword.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I, it's weird. I feel this obligation to social media. I started using, do you remember MySpace? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had MySpace. (laughs) What was MySpace for all the young kids out there? Oh (laughs) yes. I forgot. We're not the youngest generation anymore. Oh my God. Okay. So cue another existential crisis. So MySpace is basically the thing before Facebook. So MySpace, in my opinion, was very cool because it taught you basic HTML because you had to create your own backgrounds and stuff. So there's like very minor coding involved and you can customize your backgrounds. You, you could write on people's walls, message people. MySpace was a lot of fun. It caused a lot of drama. I think, you know, I think MySpace really influenced how Facebook, how people use Facebook because I remember there was a lot of drama around the top eight. MySpace friends. Do you ever have that with?
1: I, I wasn't on MySpace. Oh, you were on
0: MySpace. Oh, okay. Well, you, you, you kind of missed a little, but not a whole lot. Like it's, <laughs> I, I feel like MySpace is a total time sink, but so in MySpace, you got to create your, your own page. And so you could put your top eight. So there was like a coveted space in your MySpace where you could put your favorite like top eight friends. And so There would be drama over who's like the top three or the top two or whatever. And so you could put these various friends in there. And there were some people who would just get really hurt if you weren't in the number one space or if they weren't in the number one space or if or whatever. And I I specifically remember having to choose between like a couple of friends where they both had me as the number one friend. And I just had it there. And I've been in many arguments over who got the number one space. And I'm not friends with either of those people anymore. But I just remember wasting time like talking about, like, I put this person in the number one space because we've been friends longer and all those things. And I, so yeah, so my space, good times. I feel like that was kind of the beginning of the social media culture with the millennials. With Facebook, it's hard because there's this unspoken competition where it's like, oh, this person's enjoying, this person's having a drink, this person is out more. Have you ever
1: experienced on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, you post something and you're just like waiting for people to like the post and you wait for the likes to increase. And then for me, usually <laughs> it at a low number and I'm like, what? That's it? No one else is liking this post. In all seriousness, that does affect my mental health a little bit, which is why I tend not to go on social media a lot.
0: Does that ever happen to you? It does. I mean, as an artist, I feel like not only am I obligated to social media for social purposes, but also for art purposes, because it's really hard to get your art out there In our generation, it seems like the galleries are dying. And so in some ways, the gatekeepers are leaving their gates. And so you can get your art out there any way you need to get your art out there. It really depends on how I'm feeling. There are days where I'm able to create a lot and I have a finished piece that I'm really proud of and I post it and I get maybe 20 likes. And I'm just like, okay, okay. And then I'll post a sketch that I did and I'll get like 80, 90, 100 likes. And I'm just like, why? I'll post something I'm really proud of, like maybe I'm part of a show or something and it won't get a lot of attention. And it gets me down a little bit. And for those who are listening out there who are like, oh, Whitney, like whatever, like it doesn't affect me. It's like, don't lie, it does. Like, I know it does. And so it's like, (laughs) and so when people don't comment on it as much or don't interact with it as much, sometimes I'm like, man, I thought I was posting quality stuff here. And here you are, like not appreciating my work.
1: Wait, are you trying to insinuate that 20 likes is low? Because that's my maximum.
0: <laughs> you know, it's, I don't even know what's low anymore. My highest is, I feel really bad that I know this. It's the highest. It's like maybe 150, 200. On average, it could be like 20 to 50.
1: I'm not going to say what my highest is. <laughs> it's not very high.
0: If I post like a picture of my cats and sometimes it gets like six likes and I'm like, okay.
1: Yeah. I think we have to use social media to our benefits, just like any other technology that we use. We have to use it as a component in our life that adds to instead of subtracts from. So with work and with your art, that's a platform for you to spread that throughout the world. So that's an adds to factor. When it subtracts, When you're using it to get validation or confirmation or show that your life is going hunky-dory, I think that's when certain wellness issues can sprout up. I agree. Speaking of mental health, past research has shown that the prevalence of it is extremely high. 46% of Americans will meet the criteria for a diagnosable mental health condition sometime in their life. That's such a huge number. So why aren't we talking about this a little bit more?
0: I really do think it goes back to that tough skin mentality. Throughout history, there's been, I mean, what what do we say in our history classes, our narratives? It's like, we're resilient and we fight for freedom and we're number one and competition and industrialism and all of that stuff. And I really believe that a lot of that plays into American culture. American culture is made up of a lot of different influences, but is also rooted in very toxic ideals. It definitely takes a toll on us eventually. Also, the quality of life that America has. We're supposedly the wealthiest country in the world, and yet we don't have universal health care. We don't have access to therapy. Most people who need help really can't get it. And I think that's what makes it so hard.
1: I agree, Whitney. I think we've just been very conditioned to not talk about our feelings and have this mentality where you just plug through and you don't really focus on the hard stuff. Even going back to social media, how many times do you see someone talk about a moment of failure and then rising above that and succeeding? It's constantly a culture of putting on your best face
0: it goes back to that shame culture where in America, you're not allowed to fail. Like when I think about all these various stories that we've been taught with the American narrative and even people who we look up to, American heroes, they don't really talk about the failures that they had. Even as artists, you see like a beautiful sculpture in the museum, right? You don't see the schooling that that person did. You don't see the amount of materials wasted, the amount of time that the concept took. You don't see the amount of all the failures, sleepless nights crying in the corner, like the amount of stuff that you've, that you go through to get to that final piece. People only see the finished product and they often disconnect with the journey that went with that. And so it distorts our perception. As a creative, I'm sure many creatives can empathize where it's, you very seldom get a piece done on the first try. There's usually a lot of reworking, there's a lot of erasing, there's occasionally some crying, like it just, it really just depends. And I think that's okay. And I really wish that people embraced that process a little bit more and openly talked about the process a little more.
1: So in terms of our own experiences with therapy, I can speak on mine. I have actually had an extensive journey with therapy. It's been very helpful. It's always good to have someone to relay your problems or issues with, especially if you've had instances in the past that are sort of blocking you and preventing you from living your best life. It's a great option to bounce that off with someone else. So my experiences with therapy have been great on the whole. How about yours?
0: With therapy, I think that one of the great things about a generation is that we are willing to talk more about it. In my experience with therapy, I actually started going to therapy when I was in the second grade. I was a really sensitive kid and I grew to be a really sensitive adult. I had issues in school like being bullied and and I also had a parent who wasn't really around that much. One of my teachers told my mother like, oh, we sh- Whitney should go to therapy. And so I went to therapy and I would go get ice cream after and it was great. We would try to talk about my feelings. I would draw my feelings a lot. I wouldn't go to a therapist again until I finished high school and I first came out. I went to see a therapist and this was before I came out to my parents, before I came out to most people. And so we, we talked about it. One of the biggest things about therapy it gives you an unbiased person who knows everything about you, but isn't in your life. One thing about therapy is that it's really important to find the right therapist for you. There are so many different types of therapists, and I've been through talk therapy, person-centered therapy. Do you know what that is? I know you studied psych a little bit. Person-centered therapy is basically what a lot of people believe therapy to be, where you, I go to a therapist, I pay someone to listen to my problems, and they listen to me, basically, and they give me some advice. I've also been through cognitive behavioral therapy where I talk to a therapist and they give me very specific behavior patterns that they've observed with what I do. They try to combat that by giving me other tools to do. And then we follow up the week after and we talk about what that did and if that works or if it doesn't. I've also been to art therapy, which was a lot of fun. A lot of people think that art therapy is like, oh, you just go in and paint, but it's really, it's a little more complex than what a lot of people think it is. In my experience, it can be anything from play therapy to painting therapy to sculpting therapy. It has the potential to be a little more in-depth because the things you create speak for you in a way. So for me, I've been through some trauma exercises through art therapy to where I had to create a narrative through various little drawings that I did and we would talk about the narrative that I created. And I found that to be really helpful because I was able to take myself out of my situation So that's the type of therapy that I've been through. It really helps to have somebody who can empathize. I've worked with therapists who they're very skilled, they're very intelligent, but they're not very empathetic. I had this one therapist, this was my CBT therapist. I would tell her that sometimes I feel like I'm not always accepted by the queer community because of the way I dress. I I present pretty feminine when people see me, but people don't really look at me and be like, oh, that's a lesbian. Like that's not what a lesbian looks like. So I was talking about it and I was like, and I feel invalidated sometimes my CBT therapist was like, well, you just got to look gayer. And I ended up finding her after that. So all that to say, like, I really, it's important to find the right therapist for you. And it's important to set that boundary because this person's going to know so much about you.
1: Yeah. The two main therapies that I've been through are talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. That is the one that I've had the most extensive experience with. It's a great tool for anxiety. I know I had a lot of driving anxiety when I was a bit younger and my therapist definitely took me through that. And we practiced driving and just exposing me to different situations that I was anxious or nervous about. The concept of cognitive behavioral therapy is to... Put yourself in that situation that you're nervous or scared of and expose yourself to the point where you get desensitized to it and it becomes normalized for you. That kind of therapy has been very helpful for me. In terms of different therapists, I've been through quite a few. I did have one for two years. That was the longest I've ever been with someone. He was male older. He was super helpful in helping me with anxiety which, you know, I openly talk about. It's something I've struggled with and still do struggle with. But at the end of 2 years, I was just looking at him during one session and I was thinking, you know, it's been 2 years. I've made a little progress, but I don't feel like I've come as far as I wanted to after 2 years and I left that's something for everyone to keep in mind too. It's very important for us to be cognizant of whether we're making progress in therapy. And after 2 years, I just felt like I wasn't making progress. Maybe I was even regressing a little bit. I became very dependent on him. I needed his advice and input for making very small decisions mm. to the point where I was losing my own self-confidence in making decisions for myself. So I would advise to really utilize therapy to become a platform that can empower you to make your own decisions. The point of therapy is not to become reliant on someone else. In my opinion, it's to become your own therapist to the point where you can handle issues by yourself.
0: That's interesting that you said that you had a male therapist. Did you find that you grew out of his practices or...
1: In terms of him being male or female, I think I definitely gravitate towards female therapists a little bit more just because, well, I'm female. Having that commonality is very comforting. There are certain issues where women might be a better year for other women. And then there are other situations where men might be able to offer that different perspective. So really it's an individual preference.
0: I have different needs when it comes to finding a therapist. Like I will not see a male therapist because I just find that I have to educate. This is like unpaid emotional labor that men unconsciously or consciously put on women a lot. And this happens in my daily life. I don't want to pay someone to like listen to me only for me to educate him if that makes sense. I've always seeked out female therapists and I've actually gone times where only male therapists were available and I've opted not to go with a therapist just because I didn't really want to deal with that. I have certain needs with the therapist. I I need to have someone who is female. I need to have someone who is queer friendly. And I strongly prefer someone who is a person of color. I have yet to find a POC therapist. I find that as an Asian person, I have to educate folks about Asian practices and the kind of strictness that comes with that and the barriers that come with being Asian American. Like I've had various conversations with therapists where I've talked about my parents and they've been like, well, why don't you communicate with your parents? And it's like, okay, well, you obviously have never been in an Asian household.
1: Fortunately, I have been able to have some therapists that are people of color. Specifically, I've had an Indian female therapist that was really great. She really understood the culture that I was coming from.
0: It's important to find someone who's a good fit for you. Like there are some people who maybe they prefer someone who's really different from them or maybe they prefer someone who's very similar. And so it's just a case by case thing. I have a couple of friends who they tried art therapy and it wasn't really for them, but for me, it was, it was good. It's definitely a privilege to be able to afford therapy though.
1: It definitely is. Sometimes we forget that therapy is not widely accessible to everyone in this country or worldwide.
0: Do you think that the collective population's mental health would be a little better if America made a point to invest in mental health resources?
1: If millions and millions of people are experiencing it in a given year, then why aren't we dedicating more of our resources to handling that?
0: There's actually an episode of Parts Unknown that I actually rewatched it recently because I really miss traveling. And Anthony Bourdain is one of my favorite celebrities. There's one episode where he goes to Buenos Aires. And in Buenos Aires, everyone has a therapist. No matter how rich or poor you are, you go to a therapist. That was one of the episodes where he actually talked about his own depression, his own anxiety, and he goes to a therapist and he lets the cameras in his therapy appointment. And he talks about how even though he has this great job and he like, gets paid to eat food and communicate, ironically enough, he's very isolated and lonely, even though he has friends from all over the world. And of course, he had depression and eventually committed suicide. And so that mental health is it's real and it really does affect people. So I thought that was a really interesting episode where that's what it looks like to have a country that invests in mental health, where even the poorest person can have a therapist. Where in America, it's like a sign of wealth almost sometimes or it's a sign of good insurance. It's my personal belief that if America would invest a little more in mental health resources, our mental health would with an increase for sure.
1: I totally agree. Just the rates of therapy are inaccessible to some. If you're talking about a $50 to $60 hour session, I believe would be an average session. Times that once a week or once every two weeks that's a lot of money per year. And most people aren't able to take out a part of their income and dedicate it solely to that. So I do think it would be great for that resource just to be readily available for everyone.
0: I guess to kind of wrap up a little, we're in this really unprecedented time of isolation. And even though we have social media, we have all these things, it seems like mental health Even if you were doing pretty well before, it seems like there's a chance that one might not be doing as well now. So what are some strategies that you have been using personally during this time?
1: In terms of COVID, what I've been doing is just being really patient and gentle with myself. That's one thing I learned early on. It is a situation that we have never been in before where it seems like we're kind of living in a movie where we're not allowed to... Get within a certain distance of someone, it sort of feels like a horror movie sometimes. It's a situation that, you know, takes some adapting too. So for me, I've just learned to be very accommodating with myself. So if that means that one day I need a nap for two hours just to refresh or because I'm feeling a little down, then I say, go take that nap. If it makes a difference, then do it. Another thing that's been helping me during COVID is just to find purpose. So having different projects to work on, including this project of doing this podcast with you, Whitney, has been great. Another project I'm working on is writing my book, which I hopefully will publish this year. And just finding that purpose that gets you from one day to another where you're excited to work on something, I think is Super important just so you don't drop into that everyday lull or monotone and finding it not so meaningful. Just having that is good. And even though we're living in a time now where physical interaction with other people is not as encouraged, the resources that we have in terms of the internet and video conferencing, Zoom, Skype are really important to utilize too. So I will definitely set up Zoom chats or Skype chats with my parents, family, friends each week and make sure I'm interacting on that level, even if it's something that I don't always want to do because sometimes talking through video chat can get a little tiring. Even if it's something that I don't want to do, I think it's really important to push yourself to have some social interaction during this time, just so you don't get too isolated.
0: Definitely. Those are all great points. I think being gentle with yourself is one of the biggest things. And it's a lot easier said than done, for sure, because I think we're conditioned to be like, oh, we're not worthy of this rest. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that we are worthy of rest. We should be able to rest or sleep a little later without feeling guilty that we're not doing anything. Not doing things is important because it helps you recharge. What I've been doing is I've been trying my best to have a routine where even if it's, I get up at the same time every day. Sometimes there are times when I like get up at like 10 or 11, but I try to get up between like eight and nine. And I've also been keeping up with projects. Like I created this podcast with Anu has been really, has been really healing for me, has been really great. It's one of the things that really helps me. It really gets me excited about life. It makes me happy that I'm a part of this project. I have a lot of these art projects I'm doing. I have pets. Pets have helped me feel less isolated. I'm lucky enough to have a partner who I live with, who I enjoy seeing every day for hours and hours upon end. And so I think it's important to keep oneself busy, but also to know your boundaries. I think a lot of this comes down to boundaries where, yes, you have these projects that are fulfilling and they do things for you, but there's no project without rest because that's, that's what our bodies need. That's what your mind and heart need as well. And so on that note, that is another episode of Building Community with Whitney and Anu. If you really enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and leave some comments, post it everywhere you use social media. We want to get this into as many areas as possible. And we want to know, what are some things that you've been doing for yourself to promote wellness during COVID and these unprecedented times? Feel free to leave things in the comments. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, thank you for listening.